0: hey guys i want to welcome you to week seven of band of brothers before i get started first you can go ahead and turn to john chapter 18 that's where we're going to be today we're going to be in the story of judas betraying jesus you can go ahead and turn there but before we get started i want to take a second just kind of reiterate an email that sin came out uh, a couple weeks or a couple days ago last week we experienced a lot of crazy weather um, and this is a huge opportunity for you and i to be, truly be the hands and feet of Jesus. This is an opportunity where there's a lot of people in our congregation, a lot of people down the street from us, our neighbors, who are going through a lot, whether it be pipes bursting, uh, you know, houses flooded, anything like that. There's a lot that's happened over the past week with the extreme weather we faced. And this is just a huge opportunity for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And I want to encourage you guys to do that as well. Reach out to your family, reach out to your neighbors, your friends, to see if there's any way that you can be helpful and truly show them the love of Christ in that action. So go ahead and turn to John chapter 18. I'm going to pray and we'll go ahead and jump on in. Father, thank you for today. God, I thank you for your word um, and Lord, for providing for us. God, I pray that as we look at this story today, we look at the betrayal of Jesus, Jesus by Judas, Lord, that you would truly open our eyes to see your obedience. We would have our eyes open to see now this is a story that confirms your identity, it shows us who you truly are. Father, I pray that we would learn um, from your word today and Lord that uh, it would grow us closer to you and that we would apply what we learn to our lives, God, and go out um, and be able to share this with others. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word um, and Lord everything that, that is taught today it would be no words of mine but uh, of yours alone. Anything that comes from my mouth that's my words would be quickly forgotten. Lord, I pray all this in your name. Amen. Okay, so like I said, we're in John chapter 18. But before I jump into that, I want to kind of take a second to recap a little bit from where Ken ended last week. He was in John chapter 16 and 17, and he was talking about the high priestly prayer. That was really all of John 17. And so he spent some time on the high priestly prayer. And if you remember, he actually said that he had prepared to teach, was ready to teach, and then The Lord revealed to him something that he really wanted to be taught, and so he had to kind of go back and change some things. And we focused a lot on what Jesus was saying in the high priestly prayer. And so the first point that he made was, this was a prayer to the Father, this was a prayer to God, but he was intending it for the disciples. He intended it for the disciples to hear. If you remember, Ken started off teaching last week by reading to you The prayer that he wanted to pray for us at the beginning of his teaching. And he was doing this to show you it as as an example of what Jesus was doing in this moment as he was praying the high priestly prayer. He was praying to the Father. He was praying to God, but he was doing so in such a way that the disciples would hear him. They were in the upper room. He was surrounded by the disciples and he wanted them to hear what it was that he was praying. This high priestly prayer, what it did is it reaffirmed everything we've seen Jesus say of himself and we've seen everything that John has said so far this semester. But really kind of going back to John chapter 13, up to this point through John chapter 17, it's reaffirming everything that Jesus has said of himself. What it also does is it points to Jesus speaking to his identity as the Son of God, his identity as the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. We'll talk a lot today about how John is very Christological in nature, meaning that he does a lot of his writing to point to the identity of Jesus and point to uh, Jesus Christ alone. And so that's what Jesus has shown us in this prayer, and he's reaffirming all those things that he said, whether it's up to this point the, the institution of the Lord's Supper, the washing the disciples' feet, all of these things, the High priestly prayer is reaffirming those things that he said in his identity. And lastly, it pointed to God's role in our story of salvation. You'll see that as we go into the story of John chapter 18 of Judas betraying Jesus, it's a story that seems like there's no hope, but God actually uses it to bring us hope. He flips the story of betrayal into a story of hope. So this, leaving off the high priestly prayer, this is kind of the backdrop of where we're going to be today as we jump into John chapter 18. This is a, a pretty well-known story. It's the story of Judas, like I said, Judas betraying Jesus, but a story of betraying Jesus seems like there is no hope. There seems like there's no, uh, nothing to look forward to because taken by itself, the story of Jesus being betrayed seems like that's the end of the line. And, and out of context, it seems kind of scary. The Savior of the world, the Messiah, is being arrested. He's being betrayed. Is He really who He says He is? You'll see the disciples wrestle with this question, but really the story is a huge proof of Jesus' identity as the Son of God. You'll see, going from the betrayal, it's going to lead the cross. And so all the humiliation and the pain that Christ is going to go through at the end of His life because He was betrayed, because He was arrested here, it just confirms more and more the identity of Jesus. And we see this actually happen... After Christ has risen from the dead, he's ascended to heaven, we see this to still be true and people still to believe this and Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 2 he says, "Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death. Jesus partook in the same things as us and then died to death on the cross that we deserved so that he would have the power of death he would destroy the one who had power over death. And then again in Romans 8 it says the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the uh, weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son and a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. This story of Jesus's betrayal leads to, to this, as we see here in Romans 8, it leads to Jesus being arrested, going to the cross, dying on the cross for our sins, dies in our place as a sacrifice for our sins. This gives us hope. It gives us understanding that through all of Christ's suffering, we have hope. We talked a couple weeks ago, without the crucifixion, there is no hope. Without the sacrifice of Christ, we have no hope. And all of this does is it points us to the incredibly high price that Christ paid for us. I, the last time I talked I, or I, I taught, I talked about how if we truly believe in the life, death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, if we truly believe that no longer does God look down on us and see our sin, see us in our sinful state, but He looks down on us and sees His Son, that is the hope that this story of betrayal brings us today. Finally, before we jump in, 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, you were ransomed for the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You and I, if we are in Christ, were bought with the blood of Christ. Christ sacrificed himself on the cross so that we might have life. That's what this story brings us. This story brings us that hope. So jumping on in, John chapter 18, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden. Now I want to take a second here. You see this is a map. This is a map of Jerusalem. The, the brown lines here represent the wall that surrounds the city. And it says they, they crossed the brook Kidron. And what this is, is it's, uh, the Kidron Valley is just east of Jerusalem. And so, so they walked out of the upper room and they crossed the Kidron Valley and went to a garden. Now, John doesn't tell us specifically the name of the garden, but we know from the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that this was the Garden of Gethsemane. And so this is where Jesus and his disciples, minus Judas, went in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 18. The Garden of Gethsemane was a little over a mile east of Jerusalem. And so we see them leave the city. They can still very much so see it, but they leave the city and go to the garden. Um, they leave it on Thursday night, really Friday morning. And so when Jesus says, the, when John tells us these words, after he spoke, Jesus spoke these words, they left, they crossed the valley, went to the Garden of Gethsemane. These words really are referring to the high priestly prayer. They're referring to everything that Jesus has really said in the upper room, in the upper room discourse. Last week when Ken talked, Jesus, or John, repeated the phrase these words a lot to try to get us to look back at what Jesus was saying, who Jesus was saying that he actually was. So here again in verse 1 of chapter 18, John says, after he has spoken these words, so these words, the high priestly prayer, everything he said in the upper room, everything he said about his identity, that's what he's referring to. And so what happens is Jesus and the disciples leave the upper room. They walk out of the upper room. And they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is early Friday morning. And when I say early, I don't mean just before the sun rose, but this is somewhere between the hours of midnight and 3 a.m. It's very early in the morning, or in other words, very, very late at night. What's interesting is John doesn't include a st- the story of the agony of Jesus. He jumps f- directly from, well, and we'll see this in verse 2 of chapter 18, but he goes from the disciples and everybody went to the garden, and then verse 2, Judas shows up. He leaves out this story, and we see in Luke chapter 22, this is kind of the what's happening between verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 18, because we get this from other The other Gospels, and for instance here in Luke chapter 22, it says, this is Jesus praying, and he's praying to God. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. We'll see here, John quotes Jesus as using similar language at the end of John chapter 18, or at the end of verse 11 in John chapter 18. He says, "He speaks of the cup. He, he prays that the Father would remove this cup from him. The cup represents his life and everything that he is about to go through, the, the excruciatingly painful death. He was going to be beaten, mocked, scorned. He was going to be going through so much pain, but ultimately... It was to bring us hope. It was to, to go to the cross to bring us hope. But in this moment, Jesus, it says, he is in so much agony. The Greek word here, agony, can actually be translated to be engaged in combat with. So when you imagine Jesus praying in the garden, you imagine him praying with such agony, knowing what's about to happen. But then he says, Not my will, but your will be done. It says that he's praying in such agony that his sweat turns to blood. Now this is actually something that has happened. This isn't some just random thing that happened to Jesus because he's Jesus. No, this is something that can medically happen to anybody. In fact, there's quite a few documented cases of this. In World War II, people who survived bombings who were untouched by shrapnel, but because they were in so much agony, fear, pain, stress, whatever it was, their sweat turned to blood. So, not only is Jesus praying so fervently, not only is Jesus praying with such agony that he's sweating, but he's doing so in such a way that his sweat is turning to blood. But even through all of that, through all that agony, knowing that the Lord is not going, or that God was not going to take away this cup, Jesus still says, Not my will, but your will be done. So picking up in John 18, verse 2, we, we know that Jesus has been praying in agony. He's been praying these prayers that the Lord would take this cup from him, but not his or not his will, but God's be done. As soon as this happens, Judas shows up. John chapter 18, verse 2 says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place, the garden. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So what does this tell us? This verse actually gives us quite a bit of insight into Jesus being willing to do the will of God. It's the willingness of Jesus to do the will of God. He's going to be arrested. He's going to go to the cross. We'll see later he knows everything that's about to happen. So what does Jesus do? He goes to a place where he knows Judas will check first. He knows that Judas is going to go to this place because like verse two tells us, it was a place that they went often. A lot of scholars actually believe that Jesus and the disciples slept in this garden quite a bit. And so Jesus knew Judas would check there first after he went off to go betray Jesus. And so Jesus willingly goes there so that Judas would see him, would go to a place that he, was, he, he commonly knew. So rather than avoiding a possible confrontation, Jesus embraced this as a part of God's plan. He knew that Judas would come to the garden, and he goes there intentionally so that he can be a part of God's plan and to be in step with the will of God. A lot of John, in a lot of the book of John, we've seen comparing and contrasting. Right? If you remember if last semester, teaching of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, we compared uh, the response of both of them. Nicodemus, being a religious elite, did not respond to the gospel, but the Samaritan woman, the last person you would expect to respond to the gospel, did. And in fact, her whole town was saved. So John spends a lot of time comparing and contrasting, and the same thing is happening here. Comparing and contrasting the the disciples and then Judas and the soldiers and everybody that's with him to arrest Jesus. The disciples are scared. They're discouraged. They have no idea what's happening. The guy who they thought was the Messiah is about to be arrested. To them, what is happening? What is going on? And then Judas shows up on the scene thinking he, he is in complete control of the situation. He's got Roman soldiers. It says he's got a cohort with him. He's backed by the chief priests. He's backed by the Sanhedrin. They're the ones that are helping him arrest Jesus, and so he thinks everything is under control. I want you to take a second and imagine being one of the disciples. Put yourself in their shoes. To you, all hope would seem lost. You, you would look back at the past three and a half years of of your life. You had just given up and sacrificed so much to follow this man who you believed to be the Messiah. You had sacrificed a ton. You had left friends. You had left family. You traveled all over the place declaring this guy to be the Son of God, declaring this guy to be the Messiah. After all, it's who he said he was. And now he's being arrested. Now he's being surrounded by soldiers and they are arresting him and they're carrying him off. And then on top of that, you look across the way and you see one of your own is standing, there right, there, standing right there with them. Judas, a guy that was a disciple, somebody who's been a part of this ministry with you for the past three and a half years, is on the other side, and he is the one that is betraying Jesus. So you're surprised, and you're confused, and you have no idea what's going on. Is Jesus really who he says he is? Obviously, Judas didn't believe that because Judas was betraying Jesus, so you're surprised, you're confused, and what's happening here is we, we know that Jesus was not surprised. As I said, we'll see here in a minute, Jesus says He knows everything that's about to happen. But the disciples were confused. If you remember, they, they see Judas and they're like, why is, why is Judas there? Why is he betraying us? Back in John chapter 12 at the, the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, I'm going to hand this morsel of bread to whoever I hand it to is going to be the one who betrays me. And he hands it to Judas and they're confused. The disciples are confused because they're thinking, why, why is he handing this to Judas? In fact, it says in John chapter 12, after Jesus hands it to Judas and Judas, he tells Judas, go and do what you're going to do and do it quickly. They're all, the disciples are speaking to themselves and it says, no one at the table knew why he said this to him, to Judas, Jesus saying this to Judas. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, "Buy what we need for the feast," or that he should give something to the poor. To them, they're like, "What is he doing? Why? Why is he giving? Why is he telling us that Judas is going to betray us? That doesn't make any sense." So clearly, their minds went elsewhere. So Judas is betraying them. Judas is the one that they're confused by seeing him on the other side of the situation. But a lot of times we focus on Judas, and Judas is the one that betrays Jesus. But we can't lose sight of the fact. That the chief priests in the Sanhedrin are really the ones that are behind this. If you remember the conversation that we had a few weeks ago, Caiaphas was trying to get with the chief priests in the Sanhedrin to hatch a plan to put Jesus to death. So, on Wednesday of the Passion week, Judas makes a deal with the Sanhedrin, with the chief priests, to betray Jesus. All throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen, especially in the first 10 or 11 so chapters, John puts his foot on the gas and speeds through it. And then once we get to that point, chapter 11, 12, he pumps the brake and we go all through the Passion Week. He slows it down so that we can look at the Passion Week and really focus it, focus in on it with fine detail. Like I said, in John chapter 18, we're on Friday, but on Wednesday, Judas makes the deal with the chief priest, with the Sanhedrin, to betray Jesus. And then Thursday night is when Jesus says, Judas, you are going to be the one that betrays me. And that brings us to Friday, where Jesus is betrayed by Jesus, or Jesus is betrayed by Judas early Friday morning. We know that Judas made this deal because in Matthew 26 it says then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pills, pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see here, for 30 pieces of silver, Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, betrayed the Son of God, the Son of Man. He betrayed the Messiah, the Savior of the world, for just 30 pieces of silver. So we know that Judas has made this deal, and he was seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus. And so he does that on Friday morning. So picking up in chapter 18, verse 4, it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek?" Jesus, in calm composure, steps forward and says, who do you seek? Who are you looking for? He doesn't go hide. He doesn't hide behind the disciples. He has composed himself and goes to the, to the people trying to arrest him and says, who are you looking for? You see, he knew everything that was about to happen. He knew as he got arrested he would be led to the cross. Ultimately, his crucifixion would be a result of this arrest. He knew Judas was going to betray him. But what we're seeing here is by Jesus stepping forward and saying, Who do you seek? it shows us that Jesus, or really what it is, is John is showing us in his gospel that Jesus' death was done so in a self sacrificial and voluntary way. Jesus wasn't dragged kicking and screaming to the cross, he stepped forward. When he knew his hour had come and asked these people, Who are you seeking? Who are you looking for? And we know that Jesus knew that his hour had come because there have been moments in the past, and I'm about to show you a couple passages in the Gospel of John alone, where Jesus was being sought after by the chief priests, by the Sanhedrin, and he escaped, or he went away, and he did so because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 10 says, again, they sought to arrest him, him being Jesus, but he escaped from their hands. And then John chapter 11 says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region, of the, uh, region near the wilderness. And it says that he went with the disciples and they went somewhere in near the wilderness and hid out there, stayed there. And they did that because Jesus knew his hour had not yet come. But here we are in John chapter 18, Friday morning of the Passion Week. And Jesus knows that his hour has come. And so he steps forward, stepping forward in the will of God to be arrested. He says, who are you looking for? Now, this question is interesting because what it's doing is it's forcing these people that are there to arrest Jesus. It's forcing them to reveal who they believe Jesus to actually be. You know, as I was reading this this week, I, I started thinking, okay, this is actually very similar to a question that Jesus asked His disciples in Matthew chapter 16. He asked the disciples, He says, who do, you, who do people say that I am? And I mean, Jesus gets every answer under the sun. Some say that you're a prophet, Messiah, Elijah. Some, he just gets everything. And then He turns the question on its head and asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I know this is Matthew, but this sentence, I think, sums up perfectly what John is trying to get across to us. The entire book of John, like I said, so Christological in nature, is trying to show us that this is who Jesus is. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. You are the Savior of the world. That's who Jesus is. John has spent this entire gospel trying to establish that identity. That is the identity of Jesus. So what do these soldiers respond with? When he says, who are you seeking for? Who who are you seeking? Who are you looking for? They respond and they just simply say, Jesus of Nazareth. Now what does that reveal to us about their thoughts of Jesus? It reveals that really all they know about Him is His name and where He's from. They know His name's Jesus and they know He is from Nazareth. That is about it. They, They believe Him to just be a man. They don't believe Him to be the Messiah. They don't believe Him to be who He says He is and what He's come to do. So they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And how does Jesus respond? He responds by saying, I am he. Now, what's interesting here is in the original Greek, and it says, I am. The original Greek reads, I am. And this is huge because this is the divine title. The great I am is probably what you've heard before. God describes himself, and we'll see that in a second, as I am. He calls himself I am. So Jesus invokes a divine title when they're asking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And what's cool is this is actually the same phrase that Jesus uses in the seven I am statements that we've already seen in the Gospel of John. I'm going to read through these pretty quickly. I'm just going to read the I am statements, and you've got the rest of the verse on your notes, but Jesus says, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world. I am the door to the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. And lastly, I am the true vine. Every single time that Jesus uses this phrase, I am, he is declaring his identity as the Son of God. In this moment, with Judas being surrounded by a bunch of soldiers in a, a moment that all hope seems lost, Jesus stands forward, stands up, and looks at them and says, I am. When asked if Jesus of Nazareth is there, he says, I am he. I am. We know that this statement is true. We know that I am is this divine title because we see it in Exodus chapter 3. God describes himself this way. In fact, what's happening in Exodus chapter 3 is God is speaking to Moses, giving him instruction to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery. And Moses, getting these instructions, says, Who am I to say is sending me? Who am I to say is giving me this instruction? And God responds and says, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So God says his name is I am. God is the great I am. And so what's happening here is Jesus is saying I am. He, we've talked a lot about the hypostatic union. Jesus and God are one. So Jesus says, I am he. He invokes this divine title. And as soon as he says that, what happens? As soon as he says that, this crowd, this, or the people that are there to arrest him, immediately fall to the ground. Judas falls to the ground. They, they hear the, the glory, the power of Jesus saying, I am, the great I am. He's saying he is God Almighty, and they immediately fall to the ground. Now this wasn't something that they they heard him say that and then they thought they had to get down on the ground because they weren't worthy to stand before him. No, this was an uncontrollable response. This is something that they had no control over. They they heard Jesus say this and they immediately fell. This is something that we've seen before. It's similar in Acts chapter 9, we see Paul's on the Damascus road to go and, To persecute Christians. He hasn't been uh, converted yet. In fact, in this verse, we'll see his name is still Saul. And Jesus appears before him. And as soon as Jesus starts speaking, Paul falls to the ground. It says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Paul has the same reaction. He falls to the ground upon hearing the voice of Jesus. And this isn't a reaction of fear. This isn't something that they're frightened of doing. They're being frightened. They've, they fell to the ground because they're scared. It's no. Hearing the glory and the power and the honor of Jesus's name, of God's name, of God Almighty, they fall. They fall to the ground in reverence. And so as they're on the ground and starting to get up, Jesus asked them again, who are they looking for? Now, I think it's pretty important that anytime Jesus says anything that we should listen. But if Jesus repeats himself, if Jesus says the same thing twice, then obviously that is very important. And that's what happens here. Jesus again asks them, who are you looking for? Who do you seek? And as I was preparing this week, one of the things that I thought of as I I saw this question appear again, I started asking myself, who do I believe Jesus to be? You know, we read through the Gospel of John and we see Jesus describe himself as the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Do we believe Jesus is truly who he says he is? Do we believe that he's everything that he says he is? Or do we believe, just like these men, that he's just a man? Do we believe that he's just a man? Do we, or do we believe that he's more than a man? Guys, these are the questions that I want you to wrestle with when you break into your groups today. Because here's the thing. You might hear me ask this, do you truly believe Jesus is who he says he is? And you say, yes, Mitchell, obviously I believe Jesus is who he says he is. Discuss why you believe that. Is it because can I tell you it is? Or is do you look at God's word and see the life of Christ confirming his identity over and over and over again through the gospel of John, through all the gospels, and we've seen how our lives have been changed because of that. So these are the questions that I want you to discuss. discuss do you truly believe Jesus is who he says he is? So Jesus asked them again, Who are you looking for? Who are you seeking? And we see that their submission, their, their, them being on the ground, them falling on the ground, is very short-lived. Their submission to Christ is short-lived in that aspect. And they get up and they immediately arrest Jesus. They say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth again, which means they still believe him to just be a man, even after everything that had just happened and they arrest him. In this moment, Jesus displays great leadership because what he does is he says, arrest me, but let my disciples go. Let these men go free. And this is actually keeping to something that we see in the high priestly prayer. John 17 verse 12 says, and this is Jesus praying in the high priestly prayer. He's praying to God. Remember that, he's praying to God, but he's praying so that the disciples around him in the upper room can hear him. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, which is Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The scripture might be fulfilled in the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, but God has, or Jesus has kept all of these men, all the ones that were given to him. Jesus says here that he has kept the disciples, the ones that Jesus has given to them, and so Jesus, by saying, arresting me and letting them go free, is fulfilling what he said here in John 17, 12. Now, in this moment, Jesus is being arrested. He, he's, been, uh, he's about to be carted off. And then in steps Peter. Now, we, we know that throughout the past few weeks, anytime Peter comes up, he's like sticking his foot in his mouth. He's doing something. And we, we look at the story and we're like, Peter, what are you doing? And he's gonna do something similar here again. He, he shows us what all of the disciples are thinking in this moment. They're freaking out internally. They're scared, they're confused. They don't know what's happening. And Peter's going to react in the complete opposite way that Jesus has. If you remember, Jesus, compo- calm, composure, steps before the people trying to arrest him. asks them who they're looking for and they arrest him. Jesus is calm, he's not scared. He's submitting himself to the will of the Father. And then Peter reacts the opposite of this. Here's what he does. It says in chapter 18, verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, I'll get into a minute why the name being there is kind of interesting. But we see Peter steps forward, jumps forward, and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. What's interesting to think about and look at here is there were armed guards, there were armed men around Jesus, and Peter goes to the one man who can't defend himself. He goes to the one person that can't defend himself and cuts off his ear. The guy that has no weapon, nothing to defend himself, that's the ear of the guy he cuts off. He he attacks a defenseless slave. Now, honestly, if we were to look at Peter, it's safe to assume that there's probably a pride element here. Remember that Jesus had just told Peter that he was going to deny him three times. And you can assume Peter is, is acting out in such a way here that he's like, I'm going to show my loyalty to Christ and that I'm going to defend him. I'm not going to let him be arrested. I'm going to cut off this guy's ear and go out swinging. I'm going to go out fighting. And so he's trying to show his loyalty in that way. But if we're being honest, it just reveals the exact opposite. In fact, Jesus trying to step forward to cut off the ear or defend Jesus in this way Is revealing to us that he doesn't believe that Christ's death is necessary. He doesn't believe that Jesus has to die on the cross for our sins because he's trying to step forward and and try to avoid Jesus being arrested. When Jesus had been willingly submitting himself to this, drinking from the cup that the Father had given him, Peter doesn't think that that has to happen, doesn't want that to happen, doesn't believe it needs to happen. So he jumps forward, cuts off the ear of the servant. And if we truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if we truly believe that John has spent this entire gospel showing us that Jesus' identity is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, he's the Savior of the world, if we truly believe that, if we believe the hypostatic union that we've talked about all this semester, then really Jesus was trying to save God. But really what he was doing is he was getting in the way. Now God's will, God's plan can never be thwarted. But Peter here is trying to save God in a way that doesn't need to happen. Jesus did not need to be saved here because Jesus was actually going to be going through something that would bring Peter and all of us hope. So in John chapter 18, verse 11, this is what Jesus says to Peter right after this happens. Jesus says to Peter, he says, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, Jesus turns to Peter and puts, it tells him to put his sword away. He says, Peter, you need to take away the sword, and it was most likely a small dagger. And he says, put it away. Put it in its sheath. Take it away. This is not what needs to happen. Am I not supposed to drink from the cup that the Father has given me? What's fascinating here is John focuses us on the words of Christ. And what I mean by that is if we look at the other Gospels, John leaves out the story of Jesus healing the servant's ear. He, he leaves out the story of Jesus going up to uh, the servant and putting his hand over his ear and healing his ear. It's another miracle that happens here in the garden. In fact, Luke chapter 22, I quoted something from this earlier, but in the same passage it says, after Peter has cut off the ear of the servant, he says, but Jesus said, no more of this, speaking to Peter. And he touched his ear, the ear of the servant, and healed him. Now, what's fascinating is John or Jesus heals Malchus. And what's fascinating here is a lot of scholars say that the name was included because most likely he became a believer sometime after that. A lot of the names were included in the New Testament because those people were believers. Not everybody, but there are a lot of names that are included because they later on became a believer. And so there's a lot of scholars that believe this is true of Malchus, that he became a believer. I mean, look, Christ healed him directly in front of him. And another fascinating point to look at here is he was there, Malchus was there to arrest Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He heals the man who was there to arrest him, similar to what Jesus did with Judas, right? Judas was going to betray Jesus. He's betrayed Jesus at this point in John chapter 18. But if you remember back in John chapter 13, Jesus washes the feet of the very man who was there to betray him. So this is a story that John leaves out and I think he does so because he wants us to look at the words of Christ. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say in response to Peter? He, he shows us that he is willingly being arrested. He's, this is a self-sacrifice. It's a voluntary way of going to the cross. It shows us that God ordained all of this to happen. This was in the will of God, that Jesus would be betrayed, he'd be arrested, and he would go to the cross as a propitiation for our sins. And that this was an essential step in his voluntary self-sacrifice for the sins of humankind. Him being arrested was necessary. So look at what Jesus says. He says, Shall I not drink from the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus knew that his hour had come. Jesus looks at Peter after he cuts off the servant's ear and says, Shall I not drink from the cup that the Father has given me? And like we said earlier, this cup represents his life and all of the sacrifice and the pain that he was about to go through. And he tells Peter, I need to drink from this cup. You you shouldn't be standing here trying to cut off somebody's ear to get in the way of this. My hour has come. He told them in the upper room that his hour had come and that he needed to drink from the cup that the father has given him. This cup, like I said, represents his life and the sacrifice that he was going to go through, but it's also the portion that God had allotted to him. It was the pain the suffering that Jesus was going to go through in order to save all of humanity. It included the wrath of God. A couple weeks ago when I taught, one of the things that I said is, I can sit here and go through the anatomy and the physiology of Jesus' death on the cross. We can talk about those things. Those things can be documented. They, They can be talked about what they look like. The thing that I can't begin to describe, whether it's adjectives, whether it's uh, me trying to understand, is Jesus taking on the full wrath of God. Not only taking on the full wrath of God, but satisfying that wrath. Jesus on the cross satisfied that wrath in that cup that he's drinking from. Is in, what is included in that is the full wrath of God. This is something that I cannot begin to imagine. But if you remember back in the the beginning of the story, Jesus is praying with such agony that he's sweating blood, and he still says, no, not your will, or not my will, but your will be done. Peter tries to step in to defend him, and Jesus says, I need to drink from the cup that the Father has given me. This is the epitome of obedience. Jesus knows everything that he's about to go through. He knows the excruciatingly painful death. He knows the, the mocking that is going to be coming to him, the whips that he's going to get, the beatings that he's going to go through. And he still says, no, not my will, but your will be done. He says that to the Father. So this is the epitome of obedience, and this obedience is leading to the cross. The obedience of Christ to be arrested, to, to, to accept the betrayal of Jesus takes us to the cross and it's through christ's obedience on the cross that you and i have life if we believe in the life death resurrection and ascension of christ you and i now have life we in talking about the obedience of christ ken and i have a lot of times gone back to the philippians 2 passage and i want to read this here because i think it does a really good job of summarizing the obedience of christ and summarizing really the life of christ and who jesus is and the Son of God is the Messiah. It says, Paul writing in Philippians 2, it says, Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Guys, Jesus Christ stepped down from the heavenly places, took on human flesh, lived among us, lived a perfect life, never sinned, never did anything wrong, and following the will of God, obediently, humbly and obediently submitted Himself to the cross, so that if you and I believe in that, we might have life. And now, God has highly exalted him. He has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. That is the result of this story today. Jesus was betrayed by Judas and it led to the cross. Jesus was obedient in doing the will of God and it leads to the cross and because of that we have hope. God has taken this story that seems like It is completely hopeless. He's taken a story where all seems lost, and he's actually turned it into a story that gives us hope. And what does that do is it shows us that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. John has spent this entire gospel trying to prove this to us. And this story alone is Jesus showing us that he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He turns the story of betrayal into a story of hope. And so as we go into the discussion, the discussion questions this week, I want you to remember to talk about why do we truly believe or do we truly believe that Jesus is who He says He is? John has spent this entire gospel proving to us that and trying to reiterate to us that Jesus' identity is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. Do we truly believe that and why do we believe that? The first question here says, the disciples were in despair as they saw Jesus being carried off. Yet God was using this situation to sovereignly bring hope to the world. How can we learn to trust the work of God even through difficult situations? What might keep us, what might keep you from trusting the Lord in a hard situation? It's easy to trust God in the, the easy times, in the pain-free times, but in the hard times, in the difficult situations, do we trust the Lord? Do, what hinders us from doing that? The second question says, As Peter saw what was happening in the garden, he immediately reacted rather than trusting that God was in control. Do you find that your reactions are similar? Is your first step to act or is it to go to the Lord? In these moments of, uh, like we see Peter here, his first thing to do, is he reacted. Or do we go to the Lord in these difficult times, in these um, hard moments? And then the last question is, read Luke chapter 22, verse 42. This is the, the story that I talked about of Jesus praying in the garden, and he's in such agony. It says, just, John does not include the story in his gospel, but it's from the same story. It's from the garden. It's happening while they're in the garden. Jesus ultimately drinks from the cup that the Father gave him. If God isn't willing to remove a cup from your life, are you willing to drink from it? What might hinder you from doing this? I'm going to pray because I want you guys to discuss these questions. Get in your groups. Get with somebody. We want you to do this in community. We want you to be surrounded by, uh, by people that you're discussing these questions with, whether it's your group, your wife, your kids. Talk to people about these questions. We want you to discuss this, and we want you to do this in community. So I'm going to pray for us, and young. jump into your groups. Father, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for just giving us your word and showing us who you are. Thank you for showing us your identity as the Son of God in the Gospel of John. Lord, I pray that we would learn from your obedience. Lord, and we would look at this story of betrayal as a story of hope. Father, I pray that we would learn from the story and it would grow us closer to you. Lord, watch over us, keep us safe this week as we we go into the week, and I pray that we are able to share the story of hope, this, this gospel of hope, with those around us. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.